0: And there is a sort of skeleton staff there. There's a caretaker there who shows him around. And they show him around the garden. They show him around. Thomas Potter gets to play a little tune on the organ in the chapel. They see some really disturbing portraits that I go into in more detail in the book. I mean, some horrific ones. They also see a bed that Anne Boleyn and her ladies in waiting had stitched. They see tapestries that allegedly were in the room when Jane Seymour was giving birth to Edward VI. And they see Elizabeth the first collection of clocks and old bibles they see this and he leaves this account and it, it turns out that it actually was fairly common practice in these stately homes and uh, palaces that the caretaker staff would receive kind of a supplemental income by by moonlighting as tour guides for tourists so the to tu- the tours the palaces when the royals weren't there goes back to elizabeth the first and probably even earlier There's a whole chapter in Oliver Cromwell and in many ways actually it is also inextricably linked to the only ever English Republic. The Cromwell family when they took over they they used Whitehall a lot um, when they were in the city but Hampton Court was probably their favourite former royal possession that they used and it was sort of like a Cromwellian compound
1: Welcome to the British History Channel with me Philip Alessi-Brule and to our latest historian interview. Welcome back if you have been here before and hello and thank you for checking out this channel if you are new here. If you love British history then you are definitely in the right place. We now have a massive library of historian interviews, virtual tours and history documentaries for you to have a look through. Um, You can also join me live each Wednesday at one o'clock for our Tea Time History Chat Live. But today, I am joined by historian, author and commentator Gareth Russell to discuss his upcoming book, The Palace. You can see that. Uh, It's called The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 years of history at Hampton Court. Now, I was very fortunate Enough to get an advanced copy. It is published in the UK in August and uh, elsewhere around the world. I think it's around December. Now, Gareth is the author of seven works of nonfiction, as well as two novels set in his home city of Belfast. He is the author of The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and The End of the Edwardian Era, which was both Time's Best Book of 2019 and The Daily Telegraph best history book of 2019. He's also the author of the best-selling Young and Damned and Fair, a biography of Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard. And that was based on his research, which he did for his postgraduate degree on the Queen's household. In 2022, he published Do Let's Have Another Drink, the singular wit and double measures of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Fantastic book. Now, you may also have seen Gareth on the television or heard him on the radio um, recently as a royal expert commentator on the uh, passing of the uh, late Queen, Queen Elizabeth, and the accession and coronation of her son, Charles III. Gareth also accompanies me as a tour historian on British History Tours tours. In fact, we are fresh back from the private life of Anne Boleyn tour. Now, if you're a member of my Patreon group, you have been able to submit your questions to Gareth, which I will put to him at the end of the main interview. That makes it the ad-free extended interview. But also, if you're a member of Patreon, not only would will you get to uh, put your questions to future guests as as one of the benefits, but you will also get to hear the talks which Gareth and other historians have given on the British history tours. And I will be sharing those from this year over the next few months. So if you were, are interested in becoming a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash British history. There's loads of other history lover benefits as well, as uh, as the ones I've just mentioned. You get early access to tour tickets. Uh, Automatic membership of book club, blogs, exclusive photos from our travels, all sorts of things. But anyway, for now, let's get started with our interview with Gareth. <music> Long time no see. I actually don't Absolutely. know. Been like two weeks? Is it two weeks? You, well, you haven't been home yet
0: after no, the private life of yeah, No, yeah. I haven't. I haven't all right, so, home till Saturday,
1: but you're getting some sun, tomorrow. which is great. Yeah, well, yeah welcome absolutely. back to the British Thank History you. Channel. Thank you. I've um, I have uh, told everyone a little bit about you, giving you a brief introduction. But in your own words, do you want to just uh, let people know a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, my most recent book, which I think is my ninth, is called The Palace: uh, Five Hundred Years of History at Hampton Court Palace, from the Tudors to the Windsors, and it looks at a different room, different person, different decade, moving through the palace and sort of the history of Britain and the monarchy through those rooms. And I've written a, um, a bio at Hampton Court before. I'm a biographer of Henry VIII, fifth by Catherine Howard, but I've also done a little bit on the modern monarchy as well with the biography of the Queen Mother. So I oscillate between the 16th and 20th centuries, and I'm a broadcaster as well, and which is a great deal of
1: yeah, going to do more of that—it's—it's it's really fun. It's like Go Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and not for Crime Watch.
1: Yes, <laughs>
0: not yet. They haven't got yet. So, thank you,
1: yeah. Well, so the book is another triumph. It is fabulous. I'm um, I'm really lucky. Thank you ever so much for for getting me a copy before it's uh, published so that we can speak today. Um, it's lovely. It it, it a great book. Sorry, full again. Once again, just story after story after story but um what I want to do today is explore Mm -hmm. some of the less well-known events and characters associated with the palace which you cover in your book because obviously you know we we could easily do the Henry VIII Catherine Howard route but yeah but let's go into some of the um the lesser well-known ones but first of all let's because people won't have been able to read the book potentially by the time this interview goes out um Let's, let's just context the book, give them a bit more information about it first. So, yeah. you, you've briefly said there, but what, what's the period that this book covers? So, this Long- book
0: covers really from 1495 to 2016. And um, they are bookended by a favourite of Henry VII called Giles Domini um, and the current Princess of Wales. Although, when I'm writing about her, she was still the Duchess of Cambridge. And one of the things that I think people are going to find really interesting, or certainly I find so interesting about this, is that this is not a palace that starts with Henry VIII. This goes way back. And it was a real, there wasn't enough to get a full chapter out of it, but there was too much to leave them out. So I was able to to write about a, a medieval order called the Order of the Knights Hospitaller, who owned Hampton Court long before the Tudors. And they rented the manor out after they sort of had no more use for it. And it became you know as it is still today rich Londoners wanted a spot in the countryside and this is how Lord Daubeney, who was Henry the seventh's Chamberlain and one of the, the first people to desert Richard the third and go over to Henry the seventh long before Bolsworth um, Bosworth picked and he and you can still see what really I decided why I decided to start in 1495 1503 was because there are there's still a room present from that period the earlier stuff there's almost not in fact there is nothing left but the kitchens a lot of them date from lord dubane's times so i start with the when elizabeth of york came to visit there and each chapter moves forward into a different period and a different sort of focus within the palace and people living there so you're you're right you mentioned catherine howard and henry viii and initially i had i didn't intend to have a chapter on catherine because having written a biography of her a couple of years before and and Catherine's downfall began at Hampton Court. I thought, is this going to be repeating myself too much? But as I said in the author's note, Catherine's tragedy is so inextricably linked to Hampton Court's history, I couldn't leave it out. So I decided to, you know, the, the young and damned and fair my biography of it, looks at it from that, that those two weeks from Catherine's perspective. I brought this out to have a look at what it, what that downfall appeared like to other members of the palace, and really, it's the, the book you know, it's divided into four sections House of Tudor, House of Stuart and Cromwell, Hanover and Windsor. Slightly heavy laboring pond on house and dynasty, etc. Yeah. But it was, um, there are some you know, there are some chapters that focus on the really famous people there. You know, chapter two is Cardinal Woolsey centered, chapter three is Anne Boleyn centered, chapter eight and nine are about Mary the first and Elizabeth the first. Then monarchs that get their own moment in the son are James I, Charles I, William III, and Anne. But it's also about people like Barnaby Fitzpatrick, a young Irish nobleman. It's about a chocolatier slash businesswoman called Grace Tozier. It's about a palace palace servants uh, like the page boys, the kitchen staff, and lamplighters like Thomas Abnett. So really it tries to move through what it, what was happening in the country, but how Hampton Court has history kind of flowing in and out of it. It was the most, for me, it was the most, and I never really got tired of it. There were so many stories I couldn't include because the book has to be a readable length. But I think the stories I've chosen, hopefully, are ones that are illustrative of just kind of sex scandals and religious fundamentalism and war and politics and things that are frivolous and incredibly serious all these things binds together in Hampton Court, and tragic as well. Mm. So there's friendship and horror and treason and splendour all rolled into it. So it was—it's an epic story, and I, I really can't wait for people to read it.
1: Yes. Oh, you—you're at that point now, aren't you? You're ready. You've done it all. You've yeah, written it. Now, you've yeah. now, now you want to find out what because yeah. you've—you've you've got all this stuff to share, and it must be quite a nerve-wracking, exciting time to. for it just to be about ready for everyone else to start reading I mean I loved I I I loved it you you again you did you managed to do this with the Titanic book of course weave in much wider sort of topics like you said there what was happening in the country with directly with the people who are going through working at living in Hampton Court it works really well like you talk about the page the pages at one point and yeah and things like that um I wasn't gonna ask you specifically about him today but I didn't realize that Cromwell used Hampton Court as his weekend retreat
0: yeah all and that Cromwell, was yeah.
1: partly why it survived of course like Windsor yeah. I suppose
0: um, it's got it's it's definitely got I mean it, it Hampton Court was you know it is so inextricably linked to the monarchy but um there's a whole chapter in Oliver Cromwell, and in many ways, actually, it is also inextricably linked to the only ever English Republic. The Cromwell family, when they took over, they, they used Whitehall a lot um, when they were in the city. But Hampton Court was probably their favourite former royal possession that they used. And it was sort of like a Cromwellian compound. All the members of the family had their weekend retreats in former sections of the royal apartment so yeah that was fascinating to, to, to look at at the republican decade of the 1650s
1: yeah and how interwoven it was with charles the first end mm-hmm. and then cromwell goes and uses yeah it, and then you see charles II come back to it and um i would can you imagine what henry the would make of cromwell
2: <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> now life. i know
1: Oh, it's kind of one of the things that I would allow Henry free reign on dealing with.
0: Well, the other thing, I mean, he he probably would have been, now that you say that, I just think he might have been, given how much he loathed Scotland, he might have been even more aghast that Charles I lived there because he was born and he was a Scottish born in Scotland. Mm. So I I think probably between about 1625 and 1660, there would have been a a spot for Henry the not to get enraged uh, (laughs) between, between Charles I and Cromwell. He probably would have loathed them both, actually.
1: Yeah. Could, yeah, could yeah. So yeah. what was the initial idea for this book? And and did you and did that develop yeah. as you started researching?
0: Totally. Um, It was my agent was over from New York, her and her husband, and she wanted just to see Hampton Court. This was after Young and Damned and Fair had just come out. and Yeah, you know, I was obviously as I was talking through, it, I talked a little bit about what I knew of the later history, but it was very Catherine and Henry focused and she said you know afterwards like i really think there could be something in this and obviously when you finish one book you and your agent if you've a good relationship and i have a great one with mine you sit down and you um you have a little talk about what the next ones might be and you've three four five ideas and you you think about you know where sometimes an idea sounds great and then you go and look at it for the book proposal and there just isn't enough meat in the bones there and with Hampton Court, there was so much meat, yeah. and yeah, it did change. I actually, you know, I who who was there were more chapters at the start in the proposal. There were a lot more, and it was it was too long. It was just the idea, you know. And it, I never really got to the, you know, doing the basic word count. I thought, what's going to happen is we're going to bounce through so many stories that none of them are going to get their their proper heft and wit, and actually it's better to tell a few stories really well mm. than to tell a lot of them uh, to, to quite well or hopefully i tell these ones very well um but so it was a it was really the initial process was about sifting through what stories worked from the palace's past and also i think the um I suppose that there, there had to be a decision made on my end of, of things couldn't just be interesting. They also had to have an impact on this country or other countries. It, they they had to tell a story about some aspects of things. And you know, so and and that doesn't that really it's it's the idea that you have to separate the personal from the political or that the personal is frivolous and uninteresting is not true. So chapter eight, the privy gardens, really focuses on this spring and summer of 1555, when Mary the first believes she's pregnant. Mm. And I think there were other aspects of Mary the first's reign. and I found there to be such humanity in that, but it also was a really interesting window because it was into the politics of what Mary was like. As a queen, you see moments of even when she's dealing with this pregnancy um, tragedy, whatever it was, she still ha- she's still thinking about the political implications of France's new alliance with the Ottoman Empire. And they're dealing with the fact that the Habsburg Empire is about to be reconfigured by her father-in-law. So I find you, you will always find these moments where the personal and the, um, the political weave together beautifully. So th- it was about finding stories that did all of that. And then, uh, I suppose, logistically, the, the thing that was slightly tricky was I had made a joke when I pitched this that it was the only Tudor palace still, you know, really. That St James's Palace we can't really get into, but it was the only Tudor era palace that you can still get in and walk around. Would that be great? And then twenty twenty happened, and yeah. uh, and it it was, your um, fault. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. So I just I was working my way through maps, and you know I couldn't. You know, no one locked down. One of its difficulties for a lot of people was the unknowingness. It wasn't yeah. you know? It was it was the it was the eddying and flowing of an ending. You just never knew when it was going to be over. So I really could not afford to wait. I mean, you know, if you're in a tight deadline, you can't waste months anyway. Um, so I had to really go back and look at through a lot of really old monographs and uh, you know brilliant architectural histories to do that, and then I think, and then go and see it when it opened. Up. <laughs> hope, hope I had gotten it right. Uh, the physical layer of things and fortunate. I mean, and also the staff at Hampton Court, Philip, you know this, are absolutely brilliant and wonderful. Yeah. And certainly I was, you know, the, the, to the final point I'd make about the research and all of this is that it's a very different thing to research part one, the House of Tudor, to part four, the House of Windsor, because you move into a point where there are still people alive. And you, particularly for the final chapter, about the Duchess of Cambridge's visit. Most of the people who were there that day survived only seven years ago. And I was quite lucky in that I had done a little bit of that for Titanic with some of the grandchildren of survivors or victims. But really with my book on the Queen Mother, Do Let's Have Another Drink, I had been able to interview a lot of people who knew her. So I had a bit of experience with that. And I have to just give a little shout out if I can, there were several people who were wonderful at Hampton Court, Sarah Slater, James Harris, and I was incredibly lucky that Tracy Borman so kindly, not only, you know, give out all the encouragement, she also became a source, because Tracy was one of the people, Tracy and her daughter were one of the people who were presented to the Duchess of Cambridge and talked with her on the visit in 2016. So Tracy said, I said, would you mind, sort of, it's quite strange, you know, you're, you're both historians, and then, um, you're interviewing one but she was immensely kind and she had you know Tracy's a brilliant writer and so I think she knew what kind of details are interesting so I was that was an, a really enjoyable point of, of the research.
1: Yeah I bet that was fabulous talking to well just well talking to Tracy obviously I mean we, we yeah of course Tracy's yeah. fabulous and um we've been very lucky to to cross paths quite a few times and, and she's talking on our tours again next year but yes um and but Sarah when we were there on tour last May and Sarah was taking you into places that, um yeah. That, were, yeah that were relevant and and when I was reading the book I was like oh I remember Sarah taking yeah. you to the place the um we talking about the the two workmen who died during that the construction some... of Mary the second's yeah. palace and um and the foreman was given money to give them a good burial. I think yeah. Mary felt really bad about it. And actually, there the remains that are presumed thought of could be these men were found, and, and Sarah took us to the place where they had been found, dumped. just buried, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. dumped. Um, well,
0: Sarah, I mean, Sarah's sort of an extraordinary force of nature and knowledge when you go to Hampton Court because she, mm-hmm. one of the things that the sheer longevity of the palace and there's so many different styles i i know this sort of comes quite like, close to heresy in the tudor world but some people get very angry at the fact that half the original tudor palace was born down in the 6th, 17th century and replaced with the baroque wing I, i'm sort of thrilled a little bit by that as much as i would love to have seen the Tudor queen's apartments i That means that there is such a level of history. You you step from the 16th into the 17th century, you cross these thresholds, and there's so many different eras jostling with each other, and and this country's history is not just the 118 years of Tudor rule, It's, it's a lot more than that, it's a lot richer and darker and fascinating. And Sarah has in this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of who lived there, often in the period, not just in the Tudor period, which she's incredibly well versed on, but also in the Victorian period, which I think it's overlooked. That was probably one of my favorite, if I'm honest, one of my favorite chapters to write, um, the last Hanoverian chapter, Grace and Favor, because it's mm. this fabulous compound of slightly eccentric people. And and I, and you know, Sarah and I talked a lot about that. And there's a great there's also another great resource. About who lived there and when, and if anyone gets a chance to hire Sarah or speak to Sarah as a tour guide, she really is. She's phenomenal. I've, I've endless endless time for Sarah, and she and her knowledge is even more endless than my time for her. It's just really really stunning because she knows the bones of Hampton. Literally, that's a horrible pun, Africa. She did tell us where they found bones, but she <laughs> did. but she knows that she knows the very fabric of the palace thoroughly thoroughly impressed she
1: yeah she's um for anyone who wants to look sarah up She is the Ham- uh, she's hampton court tour guide on yeah. instagram and actually her interview preceded this one oh, on, did it? Uh, my channel yeah. so people can go yeah. back and and, yeah, and watch my an interview with sarah about hampton court palace and what it's like to guide there and the stories she's got from there um and of course, again, if you if you're coming on the Anne Boleyn tour with, with Gareth and I, then Sarah is the lady of choice. She is the one, the tour guide who takes us around Hampton Court Palace when we go because she, yeah, she's she's actually a white badge guide, which I'd not um realised means it's a uh so I've heard of green badge guides and blue badge guides. She's a yep. white badge guide, which is specific to a location. Um but her thirst for knowing more and more and more means that she just uncovers stuff all the time. It's it's fabulous. She is
0: yeah, she's she is. And also it's always quite strange afterwards when we have a little break in the day and Sarah usually shows us around in sugar costume. Yeah. It always takes me about ten seconds. And I know Sarah when she sits down in modern day clothes, I'm yeah. just for a moment. <laughs> it but it shows me how remarkably clothes can change your appearance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. true, true. Especially the Tudor costume with, with anything with head gear. Yes, I think, yes,
2: yeah.
1: As well, so um, so obviously it's famous for being a royal palace, Hampton Court. Yeah. But as you've already mentioned, we've got the Knights Hospitaller that it begins with on the site anyway, and then onto Giles Daubney. How does it become a royal palace?
0: It becomes so the Knights Hospitaler very nearly so they nearly give it away when Cardinal Woolsey has it. It's really important to note Cardinal Woolsey never owns Hampton Court. He really wants to in the same way the previous leaseholder Giles Dobney had really wanted to. And I but although he tried to network and schmooze a little with a guy called Thomas Dougra, who was the prior of the Knights Hospital at the time and was a friend and said, you know, we well, you transfer the he was people pay for it. Mm-hmm. But would they transfer the lease? The order said no. And they, now they did give Woolsey a lease that was a 99-year lease. Which, so in practice, it was like a freehold. He could do what he wanted. And, you know, although he did have a couple of illegitimate children, he didn't have any he could leave any property to. So the 99-year lease is just a catch-all term that meant he would have it for the rest of his life. And at that point, it would revert to the order. And so that the order wouldn't lose resources over the centuries. So Cardinal Woolsey did not own it. He rented Hampton Court and was allowed to make a great deal of improvements to it, as Dublin had been before him under the terms of his lease. But it's so inextricably linked to Woolsey that when, as, as I'm sure most people listening will know, Woolsey starts to stumble because of Henry VIII's great matter in the late 1520s and then finally, finally stumbles over and falls from grace. The palace by then is kind of being used. Its accommodation is being um, loaned by Woolsey to Henry and who uses it more and more. We do know that Anne Boleyn was there a couple of times when it's actually quite possible that she contracted the sweating sickness there that nearly killed her and she had to rush back to, uh, to Hever, beautiful Hever Castle in Kent. But it doesn't, for, Henry takes over the, the upkeep uh, the duties of upkeep under the terms of the lease in 1531 but he is much more successful at leaning on the order than Cardinal Wolsey had been and he inaugurates a um, property swap that is the equivalent of someone saying would you exchange your stick for this piece of bubble gum and he gives them a priory dedicated to St Mary Magdalene in Essex, and it's nothing. It's a blip. It's it's a small, small priory. And in return, they give him Hampton Court. And by this point, by the time around 1531, when this, these negotiations are gathering momentum, the order like all orders are starting to feel a little bit nervous about some of the king's ecclesiastical policies and obviously but but Hampton Court is out of monastic possession by the time the order is shut down during the dissolution so the palace comes in through a property swap the a much larger area around it called the Hampton Court chase that becomes a 10,000 acres of royal hunting domain that is, that is so large it actually entitles several other smaller palaces, uh, including Oaklands, where Henry the his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Those are that land is part of the the property bonanza that comes of the dissolution later. So the palace comes from a grossly unfair property exchange of the monastic order. Mm-hmm. The estate itself comes from when they were no longer even bothering to pretend there were property exchanges; they were just taking it from the monastic orders wholesale. So Hampton Court is in many ways one of the great survivors of the dissolution era
2: yeah interesting
1: yeah i mean your place wasn't walls at which henry confiscated anyway that was the uh archbishopric of york's actual, wasn't it, yeah. actual property yeah so yes henry it didn't worry too much about whether he should Since could the, he just did
0: <laughs> the fine, the fine print is not very interesting no.
1: For him. he wasn't an administrator. He just went no, off and no. got what he wanted. So, um actually, I was at Hampton Court the other day and kicked myself because I didn't have, for the first time in two months, I didn't have your book on me. I've had <laughs> it on me to to read it, and I went to Hampton Court without it because I'd finished it. Uh, oh my
2: well, good! Well, otherwise I mean, I I'd have taken a photo. It, yeah. <laughs> so I did Oh apologize. yeah, of course.
0: Of course, I've no, done it. Definitely, I will have it all over me next time I'm there.
1: Yes, I'm sure. Good good I've, I've let you down um but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but obviously we know it now or people it's known it's a tourist attraction basically I mean when I was there the other day it's filled with people from all yeah. over the world all over the world there um and it was fantastic there was um our good friend, uh, good mutual friend, Dr. Cat was there, um, oh, dressed was up awesome. as Queen Anne, um, insisting that she plays uh, uh, is it Tatiana in A Midsummer Night's Dream? Um, I should know, I did it at school, but anyway, uh, she's... Tanya, yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, the Queen it of was, the Fairies, I yeah.
1: Queen of the Fairies, Fantastic. I mean, she's fantastic. The, the, the whole treat was fantastic. But anyway, you know, so it's very much known as a, or people know they can go visit it, it's a tourist attraction. But I wondered if it would be a surprise to people when they read in your book, just how long it has attracted yeah. quote unquote tourists. Cause you, you do a, um, a chapter uh, about Thomas Platter, the younger um, and he gives a fantastic account, doesn't he? Of the palace mm-hmm. uh, during the reign of, of Elizabeth the So one, how did you discover that account and what yeah. did it tell us?
0: Thomas Pellet was actually one of the last things I found. It was, um I was really kind of at the final tidying up stage and then just, I was, sometimes it's hard to remember where you find these things. Sometimes you're led to one source and you're in a certain part of a library. And I always think if you go into a certain part of an archive or a really old library or any library actually, and you're in your subject area, don't just get the book out that you want. Stop and look around. And sometimes you will find, um Gems. I mean, absolutely, these old gems of sources, and or as the Georgians were so fond of collated sources and printed mm. original um, documents. It's it's it, you, and so it was found. I think it was, I think it was, it was mentioned, and then I was at the Bodleian in Oxford, and I put in a request to get a copy of it, and they very kindly found, brought it to me, and obviously be quite careful with these things, etc. But it was. um Yes, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, basically, to, to fill your listeners in, Thomas Plato the Younger was a Swiss doctor. And in his early 20s, after he'd finished studying medicine at Montpellier in France, he went on sort of a kind of um, gap year, really, traveling around Europe. And he, was, he left this extraordinary account of what it was like to visit Elizabethan England in the autumn of 1599 so really at the dying days of the 16th century and as it turned out of of Tudor rule and there were things I put in he talks about bare bathing which was you know I know we're supposed to accept context as everything but I mean I have to say my 21st century soul really shriveled at just some of uh, just hot and actually what's interesting is just because everything was it was tolerated at the time. doesn't mean everyone approved. And actually, you can pick up a little bit where Platter seems to be quite uncomfortable with the bear behind. And he talks about just, you know, the horrible things they did to the bears and the sound the bears make when they're being attacked. And he does seem to have a great deal of sympathy for them, which I find fascinating. He also sees a premiere of one of Shakespeare's plays, but... He really wants to see inside a palace and he's armed with letters of introduction to Lord Cobham, who's Lord Warden of the Sink Ports, which are these five ports in in England, the ancient ports. And if you arrive from there, it's technically the Lord Warden's responsibility to monitor monitor incoming visitors there. Potter arrives at one of them, takes his letters of introduction from a mutual friend to Lord Cobham, who's at Nonsuch, which is fabulous, somewhere between a hunting lodge and palace that Henry had built. And Elizabeth is there and he takes it to Lord Cobham and mentions that he would love to see the inside of another palace and Cobham says well you know Elizabeth the queen is here today you can see her but we've just left Hampton Court and Nonsuch is so much smaller that we didn't bring all the furniture you know they brought a lot of the furniture with them from early modern palaces as they moved from place to place mm-hmm. so he said you can see the queen today and then you know head over to Hampton Court so Thomas was thrilled with this Stays at an inn in Kingston up on Thames and the next day he's at Hampton Court. September 1599, he brings a group of friends and there is a sort of skeleton staff there. There's a caretaker there who shows him around and they show him around the garden. They show him around. He gets the, Thomas Potter gets to play a little tune on the organ in the chapel. They see some really disturbing portraits that I go into in more detail in the book. I mean, some horrific ones. They also see a bed that Anne Boleyn and her ladies in waiting had stitched. They see tapestries that allegedly were in the room when Jane Seymour was giving birth to Edward VI. And they see Elizabeth I's collection of clocks and old Bibles. They see this and he leaves this account. And it, it turns out that it actually was fairly common practice in these stately homes and uh, palaces that the caretaker staff would receive kind of a supplemental income by by moonlighting as tour guides for tourists. so the to the tours the palaces when the royals weren't there goes back to Elizabeth the I and probably even earlier.
1: Because we hear about it, I mean, it features in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't realized how yeah. long that had been yeah. a practice for before that, which is and thank goodness. Yeah. Because what an amazing account! Because the things you've mentioned, I don't think we we don't they've disappeared since some they're of those gone. items.
0: They're they're gone. What and what we managed to find, mercifully, a copy of one of the portraits I've just mentioned the um of the of the of the mother and child that's mentioned in the book. There's a copy of that. It's nowhere near the kind of the the detail he would have seen it in. And the re and I say in the book, part of what happens is that there's this coming avalanche of the civil war of the 1640s, when a lot of this stuff will vanish.
2: Mm. I mean,
0: you know, most of most of the original crown jewels didn't survive the fall of the monarchy in 1649, and so all this stuff—the Jane Seymour's tapestries, Anne Boleyn's bed, Henry VIII's hunting horn, these portraits um, of Martin Frobisher's kidnapping victims—all of this, all of this stuff is. Is gone, it, it, they just vanished, and there's little piece of detritus and all that have survived. But a lot, but thank goodness Thomas Potter was there and wrote a lot of it down. Mm. And also, he left a very thorough account of what the gardens looked like under Elizabeth I, which is invaluable for us.
2: Yeah,
1: I was saying this about people who took sketches, um, you know, say of the Whitehall mural, you know, where people went, they, they took it upon themselves to think, Well, if anything happens, we're going to yeah. lose that, so um. You know, well it's fire. history is we have sketches of them and yeah. then the originals don't last. And it's because someone's taken it upon themselves to make a record. Like well, we would take a it's, photograph it's, now, but it's much more yes, involved.
0: Of course it is. And it's but it's mm. fire. It's it, it's fire is the risk, I think, in these mm. places. In the same way until about so the, when they changed the interior of ocean liners, fire was the thing that got mm. a lot of them. Because if you if it was wood paneled and something happened at that dock, a lot of these ships burnt out, and it was the same. With these big homes because bear in mind everything fire was both the great danger and the great necessity you needed it to keep yourself warm and to light the, these rooms mm. at nighttime or, or in winter but it also was the hazard that could destroy all of it so i think a lot of these beautiful things had an inescapable element of the transient and the fragile so yes i think a lot of people sat down to make the sketches so that they wouldn't be lost if a candle fell over sunlight yeah
1: Thank goodness but i mean and goodness knows how much we don't know
0: yeah,
2: yeah so,
1: absolutely yeah um and so one of the chapters that i found the most fascinating um was the one uh you titled the Hampton court conference and people might be familiar with the outcome of that that it's the king james bible it's created sort of as a as a eventual um yeah outcome of of this of this um conference but I hadn't realised that it was so linked to Hampton Court Palace for a start. And it was held in 1604. But What was supposed to be the purpose of that conference? Can you just tell, because I I honestly, I found this this chapter so fascinating because I thought it was something I kind of had an idea of. And then turns out there's so much more to
0: it. Yeah. Well, I love theology. I love church history. And I'm very fortunate. I mean, I, I sort of get quite geekishly excited by a good debate on it. And uh, I'm quite lucky that I do because it is integral to this period. You have to understand it because they lived and ended lives based on this. It, it, is, it is not an irrelevant detail. But one of the things that is a gulf between modern Christianity and the Christianity of the early modern period, one of many, is that there was a rising belief in the infallibility of the Bible, and that was particularly central within a lot of the emerging Puritan communities. But that, whereas today there are many Christians who believe the Bible is infallible, but they don't have the same concerns about how many different variations and translations there are of the Bible. That's not a particularly modern worry for really post-Reformation Christianity, and particularly say the first two, three generations after it, it was concerning that having their, you know, the Bible was starting to be translated in varying ways. And, you know, you can walk into any bookstore today or any um, Christian bookstore in particular, and you'll see maybe a dozen different translations of the Bible. But the concern in the early 17th century among English Protestants was that there were two in competition with each other. There was one called the Geneva Bible that had been translated by many Protestants who had fled to Switzerland during Mary I's persecution of Protestants in the 1550s. And then there was one called the Bishop's Bible that Elizabeth I had authorised in 1568, I think, but in the 1560s. They were a decade apart, and there were different words they had chosen to translate. Chief among them, the Bishop's Bible uses the word bishop, and the Geneva Bible uses the word overseers, and so the Puritan claim that bishops were an artificial uh, office was rejected by those who believed the word, um, who believed the the uh, the bishops Bible translation. Anyway, in a world where religion is so important, there was really serious concerns uh, throughout Elizabeth the first time as Supreme Governor of the Church of England that there were these two Bibles and that the two, and that English Protestantism was was splintering and going into. Um, self-inflicted weakness because of these tensions. And when James VI of Scots becomes James the First of England, Ireland, and Wales, there is something called the millinery petition. And I'm thrilled I pronounced that right because I always trip over millinery and I don't know why. <laughs> but the, the millinery petition is from many Puritan, predominantly Puritan preachers who beg him to create one form of, a, of an authorised English language Bible that will be agreeable to all Um, forms of the Church of England, be it the high church that tended to be more comfortable with residuals of the Catholic traditions that predated them, or the low church that was known that tended to be more radical and more sympathetic towards the emerging Puritan or quasi-Presbyterian movement. So James I, who was a very intellectual man, loved theology more than I do even, and was um, very fond of philosophy and, and a particularly gifted linguist summons groups of bishops and theologians and experts and in particular theologians at this time have to be good linguists you are essentially a translator and a lot are brought from england's two universities the only two at the time cambridge and oxford and they decide that there will be a massive mammoth task and of the 79 books of the bible bear in mind it only becomes 66 for protestants later in the century when they abandon the deuterocanonical apocrypha which are the 13 books between the Old and New Testament, they divide them up into six two, two groups of translators at Westminster to Yorkshire Cambridge. So they have this massive task of sending out different books of the Bible to different translation points. And it takes seven years, but the whole conference on how to do this and who do, who do you assign each book to and the different tensions between the different lobbies of the church all takes place at Hampton Court in a in early in January 1604, when the many of the court are still <laughs> tremblingly hungover from a raucous Christmas right before. And but James's priority is to get this done. And so, when you think of the colossal impact that the King James Bible has had on Christianity on Protestantism in particular but also on the English language on the sta- the idea of a standardized form of English many people see that beginning to era- really the, the, a major milestone in that is the King James Bible that goes out to every English church and mm-hmm. so and you still have people people who are quite critical of uh, organized religion i'm thinking of Richard Dawkins and Philip Pullman who are very who defend the King James Bible for its literary and intellectual merit. So the King James Bible is a, is a colossus at the heart of both Christian and uh, English cultural history. So to think of just what that happened in that one drawing room at Hampton Court is slightly mind boggling. That was the one that I thought, my goodness, the, the sheer millions upon millions of lives that have been influenced through the actions taken at this one building is staggering.
1: Yes, it is. Um, I'm trying to think who it was I forgive me i have I've, I've own i just heard about, it and I can't remember who it was who's basically the concern was that with Protestantism, one of the concerns when it broke away from Catholicism that it, it it um focused more on the individual and you could end up with everyone basically having their own church and this yeah. feels like a early kind of trying Attempt
0: of to moderate. Yeah.
1: yeah, a realisation of that and trying to moderate that. Um, that's
0: that's still that's still among certain traditional elements of Catholicism or some Catholic theologians. That would still be a very strong criticism of Protestantism, but in fact, it's far too individualistic. And that the concept of born-again Christianity, which Protestant, Protestantism is either very embracing of or sympathetic to, is in fact, uh, Catholicism does not put the same emphasis. They believe they've they've miscategorized what being born again means and run with it. And so really, and and it's not obviously as as intense a debate as it was then, but I think, and sometimes I think there's even among secular critics, I think sometimes there's a tendency to portray Catholicism in a much more negative light or to, to insist that its views are, Unbiblical and and in the way Protestantism is purely biblical and Protestants care more about the Bible. It is worth pointing out that Catholicism and Protestantism have very different interpretations of how you read the Bible and what you should be doing with it. So it, it's simply that Catholicism does not um, does not believe it should be read and interpreted in the many ways that Protestantism does. So, but but again, those criticisms are not as lively or as passionate today. Some Protestants were very aware of it and quite sensitive to that critique in the late 16th century and early 17th century, because actually it was it was a cr- criticism that pulled a lot of people back towards Catholicism. So it actually did matter mm. uh, for for Protestants, and I think you're absolutely right. This desire to to say Catholicism's not right. We're not just splintering into thousands, hundreds, dozens of denominations of different Bibles. I think the King James Bible was a really determined attempt to pull back the charge of constant, that the church is in constant reformation, their constant schism. That's what mm-hmm. one Catholic theologian called the eternal schism that is Protestantism. And actually this was an attempt to say it is possible to have a Bible, Bible-centric religion in the way that we interpret the Bible to still focus on the concept of individual salvation in the way that Protestantism sees it, but not to have so many varying translations. So yes, I think you're right. I think there was an element to which it was an attempt to rebut quite a strident contemporary Catholic criticism of Protestantism.
1: It shows what a um, focus it had to be, a concern it was with how early on in James's uh, yeah. uh, English, English, Welsh and I- Irish reign. I mean, we He's, this is early 1604, everyone's hung over, but he's only come yeah. to his throne a few months before. Yeah. He's only turned up um, a couple of months he, before.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. And he also wanted to do it earlier. He had planned to schedule it in the autumn, but the plague was too strong that year. It was quite a virulent year. So it, he, this was this was not priority. pretty close to the top. Yeah, I would say mm. I think it might be the top. After the coronation, there was nothing else that mattered but this initially
1: fascinating well it, it, i think people really enjoy that chapter it's it's incredibly fascinating insightful so yeah thank you
2: that's very right, yeah. kind. thank
1: you oh we could keep going on that one but um in fact i'd love to speak to you in depth about pretty much every chapter that was in the book but <laughs> we don't have time for that you are on holiday and i and you've been very very
0: kind to, to <laughs> no uh, nonsense uh, to always a pleasure to me. <laughs> well pleasure. i, I so- i'm back i'm back in the lockdown uniform of i have a shirt on here but it's just so shorts below so shirt, i don't shorts. i but don't
1: your satins are like not 40 degree heat in the european heat oh, body,
0: as we speak i'm which- i'm I'm in, I'm in i'm in incredibly beautiful cyprus i've never been before but my good i mean the sunsets here are just extraordinary yeah, I really really jealous. beautiful. I'm,
1: I'm, I've been seeing your Instagram. I'm jealous. I'll get there one <laughs> So um, but there's another chapter that captivated me because the subject of that chapter was someone who I hadn't taken much notice of, really. Um, and um I found it quite moving as well. So it's the one about um Queen Anne of Denmark. Yeah. Um, so, uh, who I've, I've I've briefly mentioned, Doctor Cat is uh, sure. currently playing at Hampton Court. Uh, she's the wife of of James I, First, um, mother of the future Charles I. Um, and of course, there was a, a, a an older brother to Charles, Prince Henry, who mm. predeceased them all. But I found her story fascinating. How much she she changed over time um, with all the turmoils that they went through. Can you tell us more about her and her time at the
0: palace? Of course, um, she is fascinating. There's, there's I mean, she's high camp, uh, you know, Anne of Denmark really is sort of gl- glittering and over the top and larger than life and a patron of Shakespeare and dementedly extravagant. And, you know, she, um, she's, she's just an absolutely fascinating figure. But she dies at Hampton Court in 1619, and this and it's that, that chapter, the Queen's bedchamber, is about this huge personality, but the slow dimming of a life, and, and she was dismissed. When there was once, it was a history of the shirts written actually by a president of the Cromwell Association, Morris Ashley, I think and he referred to her as a dumb blonde and that was the that was the prevailing view of her for a long time that she was an idiot and because she liked to dance and party she was she was sort of self-indulgent fool we still see that we're still we still think that about people who have interests like that which is slightly odd to me but um she was she was in she was a capable of plotting if she had to, and she had survived and instigated many a plot in her time with touch like touching those, and also the possibility that she was probably involved in one of the biggest scandals of, him, of James's reign, but kept her fingers, fingerprints off them, just get a whiff right at the end that she might have been involved in destroying two of his two rival courtiers. But she, she comes to Hampton Court in the winter of 1618. She's really not very well, and she passes away there in the spring of 1619. And I find it, yeah, I find that story. I'm glad you said it was moving. I find it moving. To the it, the sense I had of Anna of Denmark when she went back to Hampton Court was, I said about her glittering. If you imagine of all the the candles of you lighting up the splendour of her career, it was like the, each candle just she dimmed. Each candle went out one by one until she was left alone with her son and a maid at the bedside. You know and some very pushy doctors but mm-hmm. she yes it was the it was a it was a life drawing slowly to its end at Hampton Court of this woman who had the most dynamic personality. the um
1: the mother-son relationship that yeah you're able to go into between her and, and the future Charles the first that that was you know that was one of the things I found the most maybe being a mother of son maybe just being a human yeah
0: but, um and also your son's around the same age roughly as Charles would have been you know Charles is 18 at this point um right. and he when did he turn he would have turned, he just turned eighteen. Yeah. And he it's a different Charles. That's one of the things that you know, this is not this book isn't a biography of Anne Boleyn or Anne of Denmark or Charles the First or anyone. You really see them at the moment that the story, that this chapter looks at them. Mm. And so to see Charles the First as an eighteen year old who's worried about his mom mm. is just it's you see a very different you see these people from such different angles. And yeah. And yeah, I I I find I find that chapter. I loved writing that, or it was sad. It was very, very sad, but it was—it felt very intimate. That particular chapter, mm.
1: I think you're right. I think this this book will give people the opportunity to see because it's not it's characters out of history from a different angle. Because it's not right. necessarily a part of their story, which would be written on in any great detail in a massive biography or you know something of them. Um, we get a little insight into them, like I say, at a particular yeah. point. Um and of course we, we see Charles the First later on yes uh, yeah
2: uh,
1: with um with everything that happens in the civil wars but we not, we're not going to going to go into that today unfortunately but people have to
0: read the book. <laughs> absolutely absolutely perfect plug
1: yeah <laughs> so before we finish the main part of the interview i've got some questions uh, in a bit for sure. from uh, my patrons but i have one final question um so of all the people that you've covered in this book um yep. And as you've said, there there are many, but also of all sorts of different social classes, which I, which I found fascinating. Who did you find the most interesting or intriguing possibly to write about? Um, and Ooh. So whose story are you glad you actually have had the opportunity to tell? Perhaps yeah. they
0: would
1: have, um, you know, a biography on their own or anything. So,
0: yep. Well, two, I would say, which is cheating. I'm sure I'll change my mind tomorrow. But one, which I think actually links quite nicely to your. you're... Um, because well, I'm giving a talk for you in autumn. I think isn't it on mm-hmm. Barnaby Fitzpatrick?
1: Yeah, for the Online History Festival. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I and I remember actually when you asked very kindly invited me to partake, I said, "Look, I have so much stuff on Barnaby Fitzpatrick, and it's just, I, I'm only writing about him when he's seventeen at Hampton Court in 1551." I have to stop there. So I had, you know, so Barnaby, I find fascinating. Barnaby, as well, many people remember, was a close friend of Edward VI and really looked set to become the adult favourite and the great power in the land. And he was the heir to an Irish barony. His father was the baron of Upper Ossery. But Barnaby's Barnaby was so interesting to me, partly because it's this moment in Irish history that never gets talked about, as the aristocracy is transitioning into a different period. And Protestantism starts to be felt in the island for the first time, but also because he is such a teenager. You know, he he's starting to develop. You know, he's, you know he's got a real interest in the ladies, and Edward the is much more interested in religion. And they're both they're having tensions over that, but they both still love to you know play bowls and fight and joust and all the rest of it. And I, I found him very believe I found him very immediate, and and also then just to see all the hope and possibility there was at 17, and then to see where his life takes him when when that, when that, I couldn't go into the detail, that's for the online history festival. But Barnaby Fitzpatrick, I find absolutely fascinating. And the fact that the fact that he was a bit flirty meant that the Protestant preachers around Edward VI, thought, that's the one we need to get rid of, that's the one we need to really watch and make sure he doesn't become too influential because they mm. didn't want Edward turning out like his father. Mm. And the other one that I found so interesting, and he like Thomas Flatter, was a bit of a last minute one. But I had the time of my life with Lord Harvey in the uh, 18th century. One, Lord Harvey was I, you know, so he was a confidant of Queen Caroline, George the wife, Caroline of Ansbach, and he really reigned in British high society in the 1730s. And in some ways, he was morally monstrous, in other ways deeply sympathetic. But his letters are this cornucopia of steering intelligence and the most unnecessary camp bitchiness and it was <laughs> so entertaining to read and write them and this these sort these of were fabulous one liners he had and the you know the stuff about the Dodger kindness of Deloraine, who he loathed and and really this was a chapter that having you know the first chapter in Queen Caroline is about Walpole and the riots and how Hampton Court kind of helps birth the you know the idea of regular prime ministerial audiences which is such a central part of british political life today but that same summer you also have you know lord hervey talking about how well endowed lord lincoln is and how much he hates the dodger countess of delorean he hates the princess royal cracking her knuckles so it really went from one chapter being very very political to one being about the sauce and spectacle of Georgian High Society, and it was a riot to write, so probably Barnaby Fitzpatrick and Lord hervey. but I think a lot of people Barbara Castleman was fascinating too, but she is sort of just unhinged, which I enjoy writing about I think a lot I think a lot of people who maybe are interested in queens and sugar queens. Will find the chapter of the Georgian Queen, Queen Caroline of Ansbach, very interesting. She really is sort of the last of those queens who openly, queens consort, excuse me, who openly wields political power. It's she's the last in the line, and, and she loved loved Hampton Court. Mm-hmm. So, but Barnaby Fitzpatrick from the 1550s and Lord Hervey from the 1730s were my two favorites. I think. I
1: think, but yeah, you're right. There they're, they're are, yeah. You've just mentioned a few others really in passing that were just, just fascinating. Well, it'd be yeah. interesting to see which characters people find the most fascinating yes. when they get hold of the yeah. book. Yeah, um,
0: I I'm think sure so, you'll get lots it, of
1: feedback. It'll be good.
0: Well, that's an interesting point because uh, yes, because people it's even my editors, my US versus UK editor, the different bits that they loved, um, that they find the most interesting. I mean, my, my UK editor loved Anne of Denmark and she thought, I mean, she she and she's just the right level of um she, there's almost like a soap opera quality to Anne of Denmark's personality it's just there's no mundane to this woman at all everything is high octane drama so mm. it's it's very very interesting which ones people gravitated towards whereas one of my American editors he found the stuff on Queen Anne's shirt his favorite mm. and so he said it really moved them about kind of the struggles of her health but so to, to, to Queen's Anne um but yeah, I'm very interested to see what people think. And if anyone has read it or watched it, drop me a line on Instagram or Facebook to let me know who your favourite was, because I'm quite interested. Mine probably will change, but Barnaby and Harvey seem like two good bets for the time being.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so if anyone wants to hear you speak more about Barnaby Fitzpatrick, then you will be yeah. doing a talk for the mm-hmm. Online History Festival, um, which is just on the Tudors. It's this autumn, the end of November. So... I'll put uh, I'll put a link to to how people can get tickets to that underneath. So, before we move on to the questions from from the patrons yes. um, from my British History Patreon club, please tell people then where they can um, find you, your work, and also remind us when the Palace is to be published. Sure, and it's different of dates course. in different places.
0: It is. So, the Palace will be released in the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa on August seventeenth this year. And it will be released in the USA, Canada, and the Philippines on December 5th. And the reason for the slight difference, I know some people find it a little frustrating, which is very kind. The reason for the slight difference is that um, it means I can promote both of them equally and go over to America to do the book tour in December, which I can't wait for. And also sometimes some of the things that I think are helpful is if you're doing books in different regions, you can also put in some geographical notes about where certain counties are worse where c- certain cities are but august 17th and december 5th depending on uh, where you're uh, buying it and they can find me on gareth russell um, author historian on facebook and underscore gareth russell all one word on instagram
1: perfect so if people want to see you on your book tour presumably you'll be Sharing how Yes. Can yeah, you.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful.
1: Okay. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much.
0: No, hit me with the questions.
1: Okay. So let's have a look. So Laurie asks, uh, it's a question on the early history of Hampton Court. Um, I'm wondering if Wolsey had previously had his eye specifically on Giles Daubeny's original palace and then upon his death jumped on the chance to acquire it or... Was it more of a case where he just happened to come across it at that time and thought it was a Mm. decent property to have? Great question. You can hear more from Gareth about the palace with our extended interview on patreon.com forward slash
2: British history.